that it is marvelous and wonderful and we will sing it until we see your face and we will sing it when we see your face. Might that be our identity today? Our collective hope, our collective joy that we, we have been saved by faith through grace in your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this sermon I think is going to be a little irregular just to give you a heads up for those note takers. Uh, we are essentially going to follow uh, my study out of Acts 21 and 22 and where it led me. And we're going to just take it backwards back into Acts 21 and 22, our passage for today. Uh, I asked Megan not to read today because we're going to read the sermon text uh, in its entirety, I think, in the sermon And also, I just wanted to recoup that time from her. Let me just ask you a question. What is the unity of the church worth to you? What's it worth? How precious is it? A company is only as unified as it is unified around its business goal. And companies will spend millions of dollars every year training and teaching and coaching and counseling their employees to all be on the same page, to the same goal. A team must be united around a single goal and a single game plan. A a book club is filled with those who share book reading. The AARP is comprised of those who are 50 years and older. I'm uh, just eight years away from that now. Cowboys fans... Are those people in the world who love to get together and be miserable? The church is those who are saved by faith in the Son of God. But what's it worth to be together in this? A golf club may have dues. Depending on how nice the golf club is, you might have different dues. So, for example, if you're going to be a member at Blackhawk Golf Course in Pflugerville, let me just tell you, the dues are relatively low. If you wanted to join Augusta, for example, you're looking at maybe half a million dollars a year to play golf. How precious is the unity of the church? How precious is the oneness in the church? Our passage as we go through the book of Acts, in Acts 21 through 22, is so connected to so much of the Bible. It is so connected to so much of the Bible. It runs through Genesis 12, when God said He would make Abraham the father of many nations. It runs through the initiation of the temple, as Cal read for us in 1 Kings 8. It is connected to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, when Jesus sends His disciples to make disciples of all nations. It's connected to the multitude of nations in Revelation 5. Connected with Jesus turning over the tables in John 2 and his prayer in John 17. And we could seriously go on and on and on and on. What is the running theme? What is the 
event that happens in Acts 21 through 22 that brings so many passages together in Scripture, it's this. There is a Gentile in the temple. There's a Gentile in the temple. And Paul is arrested because of this. That's the big event. Consider the Bible like this compared in connection to this passage when, when doctors do surgery these days on various uh, operations. They do just amazing things that we would have never thought to do, I think, a hundred years ago. So you may have a surgery in the heart, but they start through a vein in your leg. And that's how they get there. I would just love to have been there the first time someone had this idea at a medical convention and just said, let's just go through the veins. You could get through the veins in your arm, in your legs, in your feet, and your you could find a lot of places to get to the heart. Well, the Bible's like that when it comes to this event in this passage, this Gentile in the temple, and Paul being arrested for it. There's a lot of veins that come through this passage, in this passage, out of this passage, including many in the book of Acts. But to kind of illustrate how we're going to get to Acts, we're going to jump in one of the veins, as it were, that runs in and connects to our passage in Acts 21, which we're going to get to in a few moments. That passage, that vein, if you will, is Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Listen to what Paul says in his letter back to the church at Ephesus where he was just a couple of chapters ago. Paul says, Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to that one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all, and in all. This is the unity of the church. There's one God, one Spirit, one Christ, therefore there is only one, in verse 4, body. One. You cannot divide the church. You cannot do it. There are not, in this sense, many churches in the world. Locally, there are many lowercase churches all over the world. Different brands, different denominations. Southern Baptist, Missionary Baptist, just down the street from us. Presbyterian, Bible churches. There are all kinds of different churches with varying views on baptism, on pastors, on membership, on salvation, the end times, and more. But globally, and in all time, there is one church. Presbyterians, Pentecostals, and all who are truly putting their faith in Jesus Christ are a part of the one true, universal, the one body church. And we are going to go back now and see Paul's evaluation of this unity which he's just described. That there is one body of Jesus Christ, one church, one faith, one Lord. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3. 
Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. We're not going to escape the context before and after, but I just want you to read verse 1. Paul says a few verses before, for this reason, we're going to get to the reason in a minute, why is Paul in prison? He says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Why is Paul in prison? In verse 1, he says, chapter 3, verse 1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. This is an important moment in Paul's life and in the movement of the book of Acts. This imprisonment, Paul's captivity that begins here, lasts all the way through the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28. Paul is in prison and house arrest at the end of the book because of this imprisonment in chapter 21. Paul would go on to write several New Testament books that were in this imprisonment. They went from prison to prison to prison. He would write this book, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, and Timothy, all while in this imprisonment beginning in chapter 21. Why does it say that Paul is in prison? He is in prison, he says, on behalf of you Gentiles. Those who are of the nations that are not Jewish. Gentiles. I'm in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. I always thought Paul had gone to prison on behalf of the gospel. Right? I thought Paul had gone to prison because he was a Christian and because he was telling people about Jesus, because he preached about Jesus rising from the dead. Why would he say that he was in prison on behalf of you Gentiles, for your sake Gentiles, because of you Gentiles? Well, let's go to our text, Acts chapter 21. And see exactly what happened, why Paul is talking this way about his own imprisonment. Acts chapter 21, verse 27 through 29. We saw it last week in Acts chapter 20. Paul is making his way back from his tour around Asia and Greece. He's gone through Ephesus, now he's coming back to Jerusalem. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, Acts 21, verse 27, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, just like Paul told the church was going to happen in Acts 20. They were crying out, Men of Israel, help! This man is teaching, who is teaching everyone everywhere, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. How did they think this? Well, they had previously, verse 29, seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, 
with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Paul was arrested on gossip. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the temple gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Israel was in confusion. The tribune being Roman guards. Not only was Paul arrested in this moment, but had he not been arrested by the Roman guards, he would have surely been killed like Stephen. What happened? Paul was said to have brought a Gentile into the temple. He was nearly killed based on this assumption. They had seen the Ephesian in the city with Paul. They just assumed that he was in the temple too. And this was, in this time, a matter of life and death. This is a matter of life and death for Paul. Today you can go to the Istanbul Archaeological Museum. I would love to go. It's a bit of a drive though. There's a piece of stone there that came from the temple, the the second temple, this temple, Solomon's temple. There's a sign posted at a low wall inside the temple walls, and in Greek and in Latin, it reads like this. We have two stones that have been recovered from the temple that say the same thing. It says, no foreigner may enter within the wall, and it was basically a rail height law, a wall. Maybe about three or four or five feet high at the most. No foreigner may enter within the wall around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put to blame the death which will ensue. No foreigners inside. They wanted to pin that on Paul. So they wanted to kill him for breaking that law. But a Roman tribunal soldier arrested him before they could. So are you getting this? Paul Paul just took a tour around Asia, including Greece, where we saw primarily Gentiles, non-Jews, becoming Christians in Philippi. The jailer himself in Thessalonica, in Athens. Even the philosophers at the Areopagus, some of them became Christians. In Corinth, in Ephesus. These are all Gentile cities with Gentiles becoming Christians. And everywhere Paul goes, Gentiles are becoming Christians. Now he's come back to Jerusalem. It's said to have brought one of those Gentiles, one of the Ephesians, with him into the temple. And the short version is the Jews not like that very much. They accused Paul, going back to the beginning of chapter 21, they accused Paul of forsaking Moses, of rejecting the law and defiling the temple. To go back to chapter 21, look at verses 19 through 24. Chapter 21, verse 19 through 24. They knew this was coming. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem knew that this was the reputation about Paul. They knew this was coming, so they asked Paul to make some moves to try to avoid this accusation. Look what happens. After they greeted them, that is Paul and his, uh, his travel mates, his ministry partners, He related, Paul did, one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles in his ministry. It's telling Christian Jews this in Jerusalem. 
And when they heard it, they glorified God as Christians should. And they said to him, listen, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. We've got a lot of Christian Jews here. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? What are we going to do, Paul? The Jewish Christians here in Jerusalem think you're teaching Jews to leave Judaism. What are we going to do? They will certainly hear that you're in town. Here's the plan of the Christian Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. I'd love to talk to you after the service if you're interested in what this vow entails. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. This is essentially helping them be purified with Paul in the temple so that people can look at Paul and say, he is keeping the rituals. He is keeping the law. He's doing what you guys think he should be doing. Think about our conscience sermon many months ago. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses, which actually binds them to him legally in the temple, so that they may shave their heads, pay for their haircuts. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. Oh, there's all a big misunderstanding, Paul. They'll know that you're not doing those things. That you're not upending Moses. You're not upending the law with all these Gentiles coming to Christ. But that you yourself also live in observance to the law. Well, we've got a way out, right? We've got a way to save Paul's life, to get the pressure off. And make sure no one thinks Paul is taking the gospel to the Gentiles and forsaking Judaism. The leading Christians in Jerusalem say, do these washings in the temple, purify yourself, cut your hair, show that you are following the Jewish ritual. These were something that would have, these things that would have had to been done in the temple in order to be legitimate. So it would have been for all to see. But they end up arresting him anyway. It didn't do what they thought it was going to do. They accused him, saying, we heard that we think there might have been one because we saw the Ephesian over here the other day. So he gets imprisoned, he gets attacked, his life gets attacked anyway. He's saved. His life is saved because the Romans came and arrested him, which would not be the first time Roman imprisonment will save his life in coming chapters. They arrest him. Paul could have gotten out of prison. The Roman tribute was maybe one way out, as we'll see in chapters to come. Denying Jesus would have been a way out of prison. Denying that the Gentiles were supposed to come inside the temple was another way out. But Paul comes to make a defense for himself. And let's see the route that Paul chooses. Under arrest, there's a moment when he is out in public and he asks if he can address the Jewish crowd that has come to arrest him. Let's read his defense in chapters 21, verse 2, through chapter 22, verse 1. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. This is Paul's big explanation of himself. 
When they heard that he was speaking to them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew. One of you. So they would have already known. Born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, brought up in this city. Raised in Jerusalem. I'm a Jerusalem boy. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers. Remember, Paul says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was zealous for God, as all you are this day. This is what he says in verse 4. I, listen everyone, I persecuted the way. I persecuted Christians to the death. I got, I got Christians to die for being Christians. I was binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders, they can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who were there. I was going to go out to Damascus and evangelize my persecution and bring them back in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished for following Jesus. That's some Jewish cred to this crowd. I killed Christians. They will tell you. Look what he says. He speaks of his moment where he met the Lord. Verse 6, I was, As I was on my way to draw near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken by all of the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So at this point, everyone in the Jewish crowd who has just helped arrest him and bring him out of the temple are listening. Okay, Jesus of Nazareth. Paul is a prophet of sorts. Okay, he's a witness. He had a vision. Something happened. Maybe Paul, at this moment, if he had stopped his speech here, could have stopped his own arrest could have stopped his own imprisonment because they were following him up to this point. But look what it says in verse 17. Paul continues, When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, right over Paul's shoulder. I was praying over there in the temple, and I fell into a trance. And I saw him, Jesus. I saw Jesus saying to me, Make haste and go out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Listen to this conversation between Paul and Jesus. 
in his trance. Lord, they're not going to kick me out. They're, they're, they're going to accept me. They saw, Lord, they saw over and over that I was persecuting Christians. What are they going to do to me? They'll know that I'm with them. Look what Paul even says to Jesus. Verse 20, in his trance to Jesus, but then to the crowd listening, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed them. Right here, Paul is now kind of pleading the crowd's case to Jesus, as it were, in his trance. Paul is saying, Jesus, they, they're not going to kill me. They know that I'm putting your followers in prison. I was there making sure Stephen got stoned. I approved it. I loved it. I was glad for that. And then Paul seals his own fate with Jesus' own words to him in his trance. And Jesus said back to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. It's at that moment Jesus may as well have been just taking Ephesian Gentile into the Holy of Holies himself. Paul could have cried, no, 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 I'm a Jew. I'm keeping the law. Don't do this. Don't treat me like this. Instead, his final words before they couldn't take it anymore was, you have put me in prison for taking a Gentile into the temple and I'm telling you, Jesus told me to go to them. That's not the kind of defense you want to make if you want to get out of prison for taking Gentiles into the temple. Verse 22, up to this point they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Jesus wanted Paul to go to prison on behalf of the Gentiles. Is this the plan? This was Jesus' idea? This Gentile stuff that you are doing, Paul, that's going to the Gentiles, bringing the Gentiles into the temple, you're telling us Jesus told you to do this in a dream in the temple. Blasphemy on blasphemies, Paul. But I want you to see how for Paul, this is the very point of the gospel of Jesus that he is preaching. He could not get out of this imprisonment by denying Gentile inclusion without forsaking Jesus and the gospel itself. Go back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, and see, we're going to see 11 through 22, excuse me. How Paul takes this moment of his arrest and his defense into his letter back to the Ephesians years later. 
Look who his audience is as he talks to them. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is, the Jews. Their circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself One, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. That He came and preached peace to you who were far off, Peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers, foreigners, and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the singular household of God. Being built on the foundation of the apostles, their message, and the prophets, their message, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, in Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God By the Spirit. See the wonderful Trinitarian work in verse 22. In Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God the Father by the Spirit. The Jews said, Don't let the Gentiles go into the temple, they will defile where God dwells. Paul said the gospel is that Jesus died to cleanse the Gentiles so God would make them the people in whom He dwells. This is the gospel. Go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Continue reading. For this reason, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, what he, what he just said in the past 22 verses, God tearing down the wall of hostility through Jesus Christ, bringing in Gentiles. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, I went to prison on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. 
Chapter 3, verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, what he described in his defense. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Something you could have never seen about Christ, never foreseen or known about Christ. But now I'm making it known. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His Holy Spirit, His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is the mystery for which Paul went to prison? The mystery is this. It's not a mystery anymore. Verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We do not understand the gospel fully by understanding Jesus saved me. Until we understand that Jesus died for the one church from all peoples on the earth and that all who are in Christ comprise the one body of Jesus Christ. We have much to learn about the Gospel. This is our identity as Christians. We are not merely individual Christians. You cannot be. You cannot even be an individual Christian if you want to be. By definition of what Jesus did on the cross according to Paul's gospel, it is impossible to be a Christian by yourself. Because what it means to be a Christian in Paul's gospel is to be a part of that one body of Christ. Meaning I cannot fully understand or identify myself as a Christian just by my personally being saved as a Christian. My identity in the Gospel and in Christ is I am the body of Christ. I am us. I am part of the one body of Jesus Christ. As we read this morning in Colossians, here, there's not a Greek, there's not Jews, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, uncivilized people, nomadic people with no country. doesn't matter if you're a slave. doesn't matter if you're free. If you are in Christ, Christ is all and in all. And let me tell you, church, the world and our flesh do not want us to think like this about each other. The world and our own flesh will not teach us to think like this about our own salvation and about the church. We are being instructed as a generation, perhaps more than ever in this country, to cut toxic people out of our lives as if we are God and our lives are our own personal temple and no one is allowed to defile us with their poisonous, toxic sin. 
So get a new job. Switch schools. Or even better, if you can get your professors fired. Switch friends. Block them, delete them, unfriend them, unfollow them. Don't eat with them. If they disagree with you, if they don't like you, if they pressure you, if they offend you, if they actually do sin against you, take the toxic people out of your life. Headlines are filled with news of college campuses being gutted, professors fired by this kind of insidiousness. Let me add a caveat. The Bible has plenty of counsel regarding not keeping bad company. The Bible has much to say about protection from abuse and church discipline. I'm not getting at the fact that there was never a time to disassociate from anyone ever in the world. I'm getting at the understanding of unity. Being born from the gospel, which can bear our differences and even our sin against each other, our immaturity, and eternal unity. The world is not teaching us to think like this. Our flesh does not teach us to think like this. There's a recent book called The Coddling of the American Mind. It is painfully clarifying, I warn you. It's written chiefly and ironically for us today by an atheistic Jew named Jonathan Hyatt, a professor. In his book he says, Neuroscientist David Eagleman used functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, to examine the brains of people who were watching videos of other people's hands getting pricked by a needle or touched by a Q-tip. You just think about which one you'd rather have. When the hand being pricked by a needle was labeled with the participant's own religion, the area of the participant's brain that handles pain showed a larger spike of activity than when the hand was labeled with a different religion. It's what you might expect. Someone touches my own religion. Someone pricks my own religion. They're pricking me. That's how unity works, right? But the study went on even further. When arbitrary groups were created immediately before before they entered into the MRI machine. So instead of something personal and and globally recognized like a religion, you're you're put into the group of, I'm just making things up here because it wasn't in the book, you're put into groups of things like you're the gumball machine group. When you go to the MRI machine, just know you're, you're part of the gumball machine group. But when you go to the MRI machine, you just know you're part of the zebra group. Just totally random groups. No association to them. The hand being pricked that was labeled belonging even to their arbitrary group, which they had just been assigned randomly, not even on their own choice, even though the group hadn't even existed just moments earlier, the participant's brain still showed a larger spike in their group. commentary is we just don't feel as much empathy for those we see as quote unquote other 
And see how this is not just the world out there, this is deep inside our own flesh. Think about the shift that is even happening in Ephesus, in Paul's own letter. Who is Paul writing to in the book of Ephesians? He's reminding, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, he's reminding Gentiles. Remember Gentiles. Remember Gentiles. Remember you Gentiles. Paul went to prison on behalf of the Gentiles because he was supposed to have taken, supposedly had taken in an Ephesian Gentile into the temple. And after Paul made a defense where he said Jesus himself said, go to the to Gentiles, Ephesus still gets a letter years later reminding the Gentiles themselves that you were once excluded. Did you forget Gentiles on whom... On whose behalf I went to prison? That you used to be outside of the people of God? And Jesus brought you in? Can you hear Paul's message? Culture, flesh, says get the toxic people out of your life. Paul says, I put myself in prison to make sure the toxic Gentiles were included. Here's something that we need to know about ourselves and how we need to think about ourselves we are all toxic to the temple. All of us. And Paul is saying, I went to prison for the unity of the church, which God provided for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, dying for all who have sinned against Him. All of us in our sin are toxic to the temple. Not toxic to God in the same way as if we can poison God, but to defile the temple. We're all toxic to the Garden of Eden. We all might say that we're ready to go to prison for the sake of the gospel. But would you go to prison for the unity of the church? If not, we have much to learn about unity. If not, we have much to learn about the gospel itself and what accomplished was accomplished on the cross. We need to know that unity is not important in the church just because unity is generally important. A lot of people will be unified on their way to hell. Unity is important in the church, not because it's functionally and practically helpful. It just helps us accomplish a mission. But because it is what Jesus purchased on the cross. Because it is part of the gospel. Paul is in prison. He's in prison on behalf of the Gentiles because he believed... The gospel is the inclusion of all sinners everywhere who would believe in Jesus Christ. And so he wrote to the Gentile Ephesians, you remember, you were once outside. I was a prisoner on your behalf because I was said to have taken Gentiles into the temple. And you don't forget church. There is one body. There is only one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Church, listen to me. Churches will face various trials. Every church is going to face various trials. Trials of sickness, trials of death, trials of doctrine, trials of policies, trials of sinning against one another, financial trials. Trials of pastors learning from dumb things. 
Every trial, as it were, is going to be like a weight put on the foundation of the unity of the gospel. The more trials, the more weight. The more unity is tested. And we each will be tempted to discard, to separate, to get rid of people who disagree with us, who have different views than us, or who even sin against us and sin against God. But every trial is going to test our understanding and our belief and our conviction and our affection and our commitment to the gospel being the thing that makes us one. In fact, Paul did have instruction about those to avoid. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10 to 11, he says, As for a person who stirs up division. The one who wants to divide the church. This is the one Paul says, after you warn him once and you warn him twice, don't have anything to do with him. That's toxic, as it were, in our culture. How opposite is Paul from our culture? The people he says have nothing to do with are those who stir up division by gossip, by pettiness and selfishness, busybodies. Those, if you go to the previous chapters and verses in chapter 3 of Titus, those who just love debates and they love controversies. They love stirring things up. They love everything to be on edge all the time. They never want peace. They never want to make up. They never want to seek fellowship. Those who love for there to be a dynamic where there is a good group versus a bad group and they want to make sure they are always thinking of themselves as in the good group and everyone else around them is in the bad group. In this way, the church is not divided by those who might even leave a Baptist church and become a Presbyterian. Heaven forbid. Or go to a Bible church. Or even an EV free church, which actually practices adult believers' baptism and infant baptism, which blows my mind. No, division is departure from seeking unity as the one body based on the foundation of shared faith in Jesus Christ, bleeding from the cross for our sins. Has the gospel torn down the wall of my hostility? Or am I still building and maintaining walls that say, if you cross this wall, your death will be your own fault? In a fairly humorous way, Humorous to me anyway. Jonathan Hyatt introduces his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, that I mentioned a moment ago. He, mentioned, he begins it with a fictional story about him and his co-author trekking deep into the mountains of Greece in order to interview the great sage and philosopher named Mysopinos, or Mysopinos, which is a fictional character which I think is a reference to a uh, rather ironically related uh, disease. They go to see this fictional philosopher, Mesopinos, in a cave. And he is going to give them three cups of wisdom. And the exchange over the third cup of wisdom in this fictional engagement with this philosopher in the cave deep in the mountains of Greece. Mesopinos filled the cup, and we, Jonathan and his co-author, 
we drink again. Thirdly, Mosopinus said, life is a battle between good people and evil people. We looked at each other in disbelief. And Greg, his co-author, could no longer keep quiet. Oh, great oracle of Koalamas, which is the name of a Greek god of stupidity, by the way. He began haltingly, can you explain this one to us? Mesopinos said, some people are good, he said slowly and loudly, as if he thought we hadn't heard him. And some people are bad. He looked at us pointedly and took a breath. There is so much evil in the world, where does it come from? He paused as if expecting us to answer. We were speechless. From all people, he said, clearly exasperated. It is up to you and the rest of the good people in the world to fight them. You must be warriors for virtue and goodness. You can see how bad and wrong some people are. You must call them out, assemble a coalition of the righteous, and shame the evil ones until they change their ways. John asked, But don't they think the same thing about us? How can we know that it is we who are right and it is they who are wrong. Mesopinos responded tartly, referring back to one of his other cups of wisdom, Have you learned nothing from me today? Trust your feelings. Do you feel that you are right? Or do you feel that you are wrong? I feel that this interview is over. Get out. The wisdom of Mesopinos is the wisdom of our age. It's all good versus bad out there. And hint... You are always good. Why? Because you are you. You're you. So protect your temple. Don't let people come in there and defile you with their sin and their toxicity and their ideas and their backgrounds and their doctrine. Don't let anybody come close to you. This is contrary to the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the foundation of the unity of the church Romans 3 9 through 12 says that all both Jews and Gentiles Greeks are under sin we're all bad as it is written no one is righteous no, not one, not a Jew, not a Greek. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no good versus bad in the church. There is only bad sitting next to bad, thanking God that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we all deserve the judgment and the wrath of God. That you deserve hell as much as the person sitting next to you and as much as I do. But by faith in Jesus dying on the cross for both of us, we are one. One. That's what the gospel that Paul believed and preached contained. That's why he was imprisoned in Acts 20. He says it this way in Galatians 3, the scripture itself foreseeing what God, that God would justify Gentiles by faith, the Scripture preached the Gospel. Listen to this. In Genesis 12, the Scripture preached the Gospel. What is the Gospel? Paul, Galatians 3, 8, 
the Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Yes, Paul went to prison for the gospel, the gospel that sinners from all nations might be saved in Christ, me and you. And that by our faith in Christ and our unity with Christ, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Division has no place in this church. Paul would ask the church in Corinth, is Christ divided? It's absurd. Absurd. It's impossible that Christ would be divided. It is impossible that His body can be divided. Now listen. We could spend a lot of time talking about ways churches should be unified. Read the second half of the book of Ephesians. Read the, past, past, the last three chapters of the book of Romans. Read Colossians chapter 3. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Read Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. We could go on and on about the a number of ways that we can forgive, we can be patient, we can be kind, we can be humble. So many ways that we can foster unity in the church. We could talk even about team building, services that we enjoy together, hobbies that we love, schooling that we share together. All those things can erode. All those things can go away. It is not a long list of policies or doctrines per se or hobbies that can unify a church. It's Christ. This is why I have more fellowship with a Presbyterian, a baby baptizer, who loves the gospel and who loves the church than a Baptist who loves himself more than the church. I wondered if I should even mention this. I think it's funny. I hope this doesn't cause you to lose faith in me as your pastor. We interviewed several people when we hired Cal. A lot of people, actually, a couple of years ago. One of the men that we really liked, and my wife and I even met personally, has now become a Presbyterian. Can you imagine? You and I have more to do with those who differ on some even significant culture-changing, church-practice-defining differences who love the gospel and love the church than those who love division. We don't need a ton of practice and instruction. There's plenty of practice and instruction about how to be unified in the church, but none more potent in bringing about unity than knowing and loving, and reveling, and singing, and rejoicing, and remembering the gospel itself it is the thing that unites sinners to one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God. Paul begins Ephesians chapter 4 like this. The verses just before what we began. Paul's first instruction to you, to the church, on the 
instruction side of his letter. This is my really one instruction to you today. Paul begins Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. You see what Paul's doing there. He's invoking Acts 20. And the Ephesian, the, the Gentile in the temple, he's triggering us to remember that he is in prison on behalf of the recipients of this letter, the Gentiles. That unity, he is invoking that unity which is so global and so eternal in Christ from chapter 2. The mystery of the Gentiles from chapter 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, and you know why, that unity that is applied eternally and for all time in the one body gets applied in his instruction to the church locally. This church and every church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, he continues, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility, that means lowliness, not thinking of yourself too high. Gentleness, person of courtesy, opposite of violent. Do it with patience, which means you are long-suffering. Bearing with one another in love, you stick with each other. You endure each other with affection. Now hear the last words. Verse 3. Eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The gospel, the unity of the church, one body, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Be eager to maintain that unity together, which means you go to that unity quickly and you do your best to be unified because that's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us, a people. We're formerly outside, formerly unwelcomed by the dividing wall of hostility. The Christ has come and his blood has purchased sinners like us in a church like this to be a part of the one body of Jesus Christ. Help us feel and remember and live by the conviction that our unity is not something that we are to attain, not something that we are to try to gain, not something that we are to try to work out because unity is helpful, but something that we ought to be because it's something that we are in Christ. I pray that you would help us have that affection, have that understanding of the gospel, have that conviction, the eagerness to do it quickly and do our best to maintain the unity that comes through the gospel for us. May it be so. For your glory.
for our own joy. In Jesus' name, amen.